and welcome to the Oxford University Science Podcast. My name is Marcus de Sotoy and I'm Professor of Mathematics and the Simonyi Professor for the Public Understanding of Science here at the University of Oxford. In each podcast we'll be taking a look at some of the big science stories making the news here in Oxford and around the world. Uh, I'll let my other hosts introduce themselves. So I'm Pedro Ferreira, I'm a cosmologist uh, at the Astrophysics Department here at Oxford. I'm Irene Tracy, I'm a neuroscientist uh, and I direct the Oxford Centre for Functional Imaging of the Brain. I'm interested in neuroimaging. And I'm Chris Lintot, I'm a researcher here in astrophysics where I run the Galaxy Zoo project, the world's largest astronomical collaboration. And we're going to start by looking out into the far reaches of the universe and galaxy and Pedro, um, this thing called dark matter which seems to be obsessing a lot of people. What is dark matter? Well, I have to give a preamble to all this not only is there dark matter there's dark energy there's a lot of dark stuff 95 percent of the universe may be in dark stuff and uh the question is why why is there why is there this stuff so we have this incredibly simple model of the universe and basically you know it predicts that the universe is expanding that it's cooling down we've seen all this people win nobel prizes for this so it's you know it's very it's kind of established and it's based on two simple assumptions it's based on Einstein's theory of gravity that explains how things interact on very large scales, how, how things pull each other together. And it's based on the assumption that everything looks the same anywhere. It's, it's the Copernican principle. We don't live in a special place. And you put these things together and you get an expanding universe. Now, there are two pieces of evidence which kind of rock the boat. One of them is when we look at galaxies, they seem to be spinning around much too quickly and something has to rein in the, 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 the way. If, if, if all there was was what we saw in galaxies, they would fly apart. So there's got to be something reining it in. And the easiest thing to posit is there's some stuff there that we don't see. That's the dark matter. But then there's this other observation, which is that the universe seems to be expanding far too quickly. It seems to be accelerating. Now, if you think of stuff and gravity, uh, stuff pulls things in, it, it attracts, it should slow down the expansion of the universe. The universe seems to be accelerating. It seems to be expanding much too quickly. So it's not only expanding; it's just going accelerating faster. I mean, it's, it's exactly really, so, so. Something's blowing it out. Something's blowing it out. There's something repulsive in the universe, which is pushing <laughs> it apart. <laughs> and uh, someone has called it dark energy. So we end up with a universe where five percent of it is the stuff that we know and love. It's atoms. Uh, about 25% is this dark matter which kind of bulks up galaxies and then 70% is this stuff which is repulsive that kind of stretches space-time apart far too quickly uh, so that's you know that's the the, the quick answer to, to, to your question so uh, and it's called dark because we it's we don't know where it is or what it is it's I mean, called dark because we don't see it and by not seeing it means it doesn't either emit light or it doesn't reflect light it just doesn't interact so with how light. on earth are we going to the only See way this stuff. Well. I mean, or, or how how are we going to find it? I mean, so the evidence there's evidence that there is something there yes. because the it's only an evi- it's interesting. All, the only evidence for the the universe there being so much dark stuff in the universe is because the way that it affects other things. In other words, it's indirect. It's the way that other things move in its gravitational field. Um, there are, for example, dark matter. There are attempts at looking for it by building these experiments buried deep underground and just waiting for this dark matter to interact with these big detectors, or by looking at uh, 
the way that dark matter interacts with itself and then emits other particles. And so you, it's always indirect. I mean, the only direct way is by looking at these detectors underground. But looking at the heavens, it's only indirect. You have to look at the consequences of its interactions with other things. And, and how are these detectors going to detect dark matter? How does that work? Well, one idea for dark matter is that they're these very heavy particles and they interact very weakly. And so what you do is you bury some stuff underground far away from everything else where it shouldn't interact with anything mm -hmm. except maybe every now and then one of these dark matter particles which doesn't interact with it hardly anything can go through the earth and might interact with, uh, right. with these okay. detectors. So it's this strange idea I always think that there are huge numbers of these particles flowing through mm. us right now yes. presumably. Do I mean there's a local density of we dark live, matter we're sitting we in this stuff. We are surrounded by dark matter in principle. Right. So there's this path of dark matter um, yes, and it, but the interest so dark matter, you know, it's a big dark energy is much more interesting or much less interesting depending how, on how you look at it. There's a colleague of ours, a, a cosmologist in a Chicago called Rocky Cole, who says the only thing we know about dark energy is that we don't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, that sounds like quantum physics. Yeah. <laughs> if you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't. Yeah. Yes. Know, but this is this is really true. We know absolutely nothing about dark energy. All we know is that the universe is expanding far too quickly and the explanation that people have come up is that there's something pushing it apart that's all we know about it. And, and so is it some kind of uh, fix then i mean basically you know we've got uh, we can see that the universe is doing something yes. we've got to come up with i mean i suppose that's what science is though yeah, it's, it's coming up with ideas to... there are two points of view i mean we could go back to the you know the 19 late 1960s 1970s and people were trying to understand the fundamental model for particle physics and this there was a model put forward and one of the things that it predicted was some particle, some mm -hmm. particles which then in the 70s were discovered at CERN. So this could be the same thing, you know, you look at these observations, you have to come up with a model that fits the data, some type of data. Now we have to come look for some way of looking for this dark matter mm -hmm. and dark energy. So it could be. The other point of view is that our model is wrong and mm. basically what I said is that the theory of our theory of the universe is based on two premises Einstein's theory of gravity and the fact that we don't live in a special place now one of these two things could be wrong maybe Einstein's theory is valid out to the edges of the solar system but once we go to very large scales maybe it's wrong the other possibility is that we live in a special place and that's something that people here have looked at maybe we live in a, a kind of a void in the middle of the universe and what ha what is happening locally actually is different from what's happening in other places and that will look like it's the universe will look like it's accelerating is there evidence for that i mean uh, uh... the interesting well let's put it this way you can fit you can fit the data by assuming that you live in a void in a local void so you that you live in a special place more interesting is you can test it as well in other words you can say make these observations and the observations will tell you whether you live in a special place or not. And I think that's quite quite exciting. So the data I work with from this, the large sky surveys, we have maps of a million galaxies, and you see this, well, in press releases, we call it the cosmic web, this, this wonderful structure of galaxies along strings with areas that, that are voids, areas with relatively few galaxies. Can that data address this question and tell us whether we're living in a voidy enough universe? Well, it, that's very interesting because it's suggestive. When you look at these surveys that, that you have, there are two things that you see. First of all, you typically see these voids, and these voids are of order 10 million light years across. Okay. Now, the voids that we're talking about, uh, to, that would fit, a void that would fix this problem, would have to be something like 800 million light years across, so much larger. Mm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when you look at these surveys that, that you've worked on, Chris, um, you actually see structure 
out to the extent of the survey. So you do get an uh, you get an idea that this, these surveys aren't a fair sample of the universe yet. That you'd have to do a survey which would go out to as far as you could see. And there are plans to do that. I mean, there's this insane project being run from here called the Square Kilometre Array, which is to make a map of all the observable galaxies as far as it's possible to see. That means uh, a billion galaxies. And that would be kind of the ultimate cartography mm -hmm. of the universe. And then you could see if we lived in a void or not. Mm -hmm. And with this uh, explanation, if we did live in a void, and, and that means that uh, there's an area where there isn't, as, as much stuff as there is outside. Yes. That's what we mean by a void, is That's it? That's exactly. Uh, would that sort of give an explanation then for the expansion and also the dark? Would yes. it mean that we don't have to talk about dark matter and dark it energy? It would solve the dark energy problem. Uh -huh. um, we would still have the dark matter problem because the dark matter problem basically arises on, on you, you already see it on quite small scales, which are actually quite big scales, but on the scales that Chris works, when, when we look at um, galaxies that are rotating, you know, those are scales of something like um, 20,000 light years. The voids that I'm talking about are, you know, of order 100 million light years. But um, you wouldn't solve the, the problems of galaxies. Well, I wanted to talk about, it seems we're talking about different scales. You're right that dark matter, we'll just blame the particle physicists for now, if that's all right with everyone else. But you, there's one piece of evidence that suggests we see dark energy on small scales. It's very tenuous, but it's based on a couple of spacecraft that were sent to look at the outer planets, called the Pioneers, which were launched in the 70s. So there are two of these things. They visited Jupiter um, and Saturn and then headed off into different directions in the solar system. And they're still sending back little bleeps and we're still in touch with them. They're the furthest man-made objects from the Earth. And they're moving at slightly strange, in a slightly strange way. They're actually moving slightly faster than they should be. And it's been suggested that right. we're now testing something right across the solar system. Mm -hmm. It's been suggested that this pioneer anomaly, is the, the phrase given to it, is something to do with this dark energy. It's a, a, a distortion from normal gravity on solar system scales. Do you have any thoughts well, about that? Well, I think that the pioneer anomaly has been around for a while. And um, I, don't, I, I don't know if the numbers are exact, but that kind of deviation from what you'd expect from just normal um, motion is what you'd get if, is if you if you shone something like a 20 watt light bulb on one of the detectors for for a little while so the effect is minute which means that I think they're still trying to figure out if there's some systematic problem mm. in, in, in these instruments first second it's been argued that it's evidence for dark energy. It's also been argued that it's evidence that Einstein's theory of gravity is wrong on the scale of the solar system. So it's at the moment, the pioneer anomaly hasn't gone away yet. There are a lot of people who are skeptical about it. And um, you can argue that it's for dark energy. You can also argue that it's not. So I mean, also, I guess uh, there's um, we have the observable universe, but there are things beyond that which we are never going to be able to see because light takes yeah. a certain amount of time from the Big Bang, 13 exactly. billion years. Between so. 13 and 15 billion years. Okay, yeah. good, right. <laughs> um, so is it possible there are lots of things out there well, which we can't see, which might be pulling these things uh, one way or the other and, and, and we'll never be able to see these things? I well, mean, that's, I think that's a really good point. You know, this, this scenario that I constructed for you, that we live in this void, that we live in a special place, but yeah, there might be many special places, right? When you look at the surface of the of the earth, you've got hills and valleys. And, you know, a hill, when you're on a hill, it's a pretty special place. But you've got a hill over there and, and the same for a valley. This could, we could live in a big valley in the universe. And there could be another big valley 
many billions of uh, light years away from us. So uh, it's possible. And not only that, the fact that the universe is so structured, there are so many hills and valleys on large scales, may indeed lead to dynamics. The, the universe on the whole might, may evolve in a different way than if it was completely smooth and, and the same everywhere. So yes, I mean, there's a lot that could be going on outside what we can see, and it could affect us. Can I just take you back to the very starting point, which is this comment you made that the universe is expanding faster than it should. So, so who, who said what speed it should be accelerating at, and, and where does that calculation come in, okay. and how accurate so we, are you that this is, this is indeed faster than So what? there are two things. First of all, how we expect that the universe should be expanding, but it should be decelerating, mm. should be slowing down. And the intuitive way of understanding this is if the universe is full of stuff like this, mm. or even like dark matter, Dark matter pulls, mm. stuff pulls, it's gravitationally attractive, so it's going to tug at space-time, mm -hmm. and if the, if the universe is expanding, it's going to slow it down. Mm -hmm. That's why we expect it to be decelerating. Right. Okay? Okay. What happened was about 10 years ago, people looked at very distant explosions of um, stars called supernovae, and mm -hmm. they're very distant, and they're incredibly bright. Mm -hmm. They emit, when they explode, they emit as much light as mm -hmm. a galaxy. Right. They're just okay. amazing events, which means we can look at them very far away. Mm -hmm. And by looking at these things, we can figure out, first of all, what their distance is. Yeah. And we can also figure out more or less where they are on space-time. Mm -hmm. And what we realize is that they were much further away than we expected them to be. Right. All right? And the only way for that to fit is that if the universe was expanding more slowly than what we expected, and then had to speed up to catch up. Right. And it's that speed up, okay. that acceleration that we're detecting. Okay. And so then we say, if it's accelerating, well, we, d we expect stuff to decelerate space-time, mm. but it's not, so there's got to be something which is pushing yeah. it apart. Okay, okay, right. Would the um, idea of this void actually challenge um, our ideas of how the universe actually developed from the Big Bang? I mean, uh, it, I can we give an explanation of why there would be these voids? Or is it really going to challenge uh, the whole theory of how things evolved? I think it's, you've got to compare things, right? So it's very, you know, to have a void of this scale to appear naturally is incredibly unlikely. I think I worked out the numbers. It's one over 10 to 100. I mean, it's really very unlikely, okay? Yeah, that's very... <laughs> it's really unlikely. It's really unlikely. However, however, let's look at the alternative, which is that there's this repulsive mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. in the universe. And it turns out that the energy scale of this stuff which is which is um, supposed to push the universe apart is 120 orders of magnitude off what we right. would expect it to be naturally. So none of this stuff comes out naturally yeah. from any fundamental theory. What is natural between these two? Mm. And that's why I think many of us step back and say, okay, we have no idea where this comes from. Is it there? Can we mm. test it? Can we test between these two paradigms? Um, but there you go. I think you know. Yeah, so both are. Are, are funding agencies interested in in exploring ideas of dark matter? Well, dark well, energy, dark matter, and dark energy. You know, given that we have no idea what it is, it's pretty amazing how keen funding agencies are <laughs> to fund it, and and I'm glad they do. So is that because it's got a sexy name? You know, it's like got dark. <laughs> well, you I mean the dark energy? Just to mention two things. Uh, there's this thing. This you know, crazy, fantastic project called the Square Kilometre Array, where basically they're going to build a radio telescope um, which has a collecting area of about a square kilometre. They're probably going to put it either in South Africa or Australia, and this is just going to videotape the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be fantastic. And that's going to cost hundreds of millions, mm. you know, possibly even a billion, I don't know. Um, NASA and the European Space Agency are now discussing sending up a satellite, which is going to probably cost about 
between 700 million and a billion mm -hmm. uh, uh, euros to look for dark energy, to measure dark energy by mapping out the cosmos in different ways and looking at distant supernova. So, yeah, they want to spend money on it. Mm -hmm. And one of the joys of this is, yeah, I, I'm interested in everything else you get for free because yeah. if you're looking, if you do a survey of a million galaxies or a billion, billion galaxies because you care about them as points in your universe to look at the dark energy. We also learn about the galaxies. Yes. I, I've heard what cosmologists dismiss as foreground quite yes. often. You know, that's the stuff we're interested mm. in. You get the rest of astrophysics alongside this, and the two work together. So if you I, want I, to understand the supernovae, you've got to understand stars. And I, to do that, you've got to get galaxies, and the whole thing works happily together. And it's very interesting, because I think that's... Now when you evaluate a project like this, to look for dark energy, which is kind of very focused on one thing, there is a rubric, which is legacy. And legacy is exactly, can you use this data set yeah. for doing other things? Mm -hmm. So I anyway, it's, an, it's exciting times. Odd, but exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, well, we turn from the very global to the slightly more local, which is uh, talking about the actual environment in which you do science. I mean, where you do your science is your environment, does it affect your scientific output? And many leading scientific research groups across the world believe a good building can make a huge difference to good research. And one lucky department here in Oxford moved into a state-of-the-art building this year, which many believe will enhance the research done by its inhabitants. The new biochemistry building in Oxford is a beautiful glass structure with intriguing coloured glass fins attached to the sides, whose colours pick up the rich red terracotta orange, brown and plum of the surrounding buildings providing a bold yet complimentary take on the historic setting of Oxford. The glass facade is meant to make a statement about the transparency of the research being done inside, challenging public perceptions of the inaccessible nature of scientific research. You can literally see scientists doing their science. The department is doing some of the most cutting-edge science in the world, into understanding DNA, cell growth and immunity. But the inside of the building is perhaps more important to those actually doing the science. All of the interior spaces revolve around an organic-shaped, naturally-ventilated, timber-clad atrium. Dramatic sculptural staircases crisscross the atrium, which facilitate chance encounters and conversations between researchers. And this was key to the design of the building. Before, the department's scientists were scattered in outmoded buildings spread across the university with little opportunity for interaction. But time and again, it is a chance conversation that can lead to new connections and collaborations emerging, especially in a subject that has become increasingly interdisciplinary and no longer relies on traditional department boundaries. But the biochemistry building has another interesting component which the developers believe will inspire great science. Challenging artwork runs throughout the building. A digitally printed carpet designed by Tim Head creating patterns that are neither uniform or random greets you as you enter the atrium, mirroring the simulations the researchers do inside the building on the behaviour of protein molecules. Large Rorschach-style ink blots created by Nikki Hurst challenge the researchers to question how they view and organise the world around them. And a piece called Nought to Ten Million uses 150 iridescent bird forms to explore the state of matter at high temperatures when it breaks apart into its basic components becoming plasma. It's truly an inspiring building to turn up and work in every day.
Irene, do you believe that buildings are important for doing good research? I do. I, abs- I really do. I, let me first say, I think there's no substitute for having really smart people mixing up together. So, you know, you've got to have that to start with. But the sort of added benefit and the sort of synergistic interaction that you can get from those smart people able to interact and have those chance encounters. There are so many examples where, you know, this is sort of forced and people try to create, you know, special events or whatever to encourage this interaction. And in, in my experience they never really work that well the unusual combination of people that might suddenly take your research down a different direction most often just comes from serendipity and does come from having a chat you know over a cup of coffee or going to a seminar uh, that is in your building and you happen to you know be caught by eye for the title of that particular one and it sets you thinking about something different so there are so many advantages for having a building design such that people can bump into each other, they can socialise, uh, they can at least be aware of what is going on down the corridor, because again, that's another terrible legacy that I think is prevalent across the world in science, is that people can be collaborating with somebody halfway across the world without realising down the corridor, you know, they've got somebody who actually has got the kit you might need to borrow, or they've got, you know, a, a research portfolio that you know would fit with that. So, um, I mean, locally myself, we have a humorous um, sort of barrier to collaborations, and that is that where I work in the imaging centre, it's up where the main hospitals are, which is only about a mile away from the city centre in Oxford University, which is where the main science campus is. And it has a hill, uh, and this hill requires people to put a little bit of puff and energy getting on their bikes to get up it. And you won't believe what a barrier that is for getting people up <laughs> the hill to come, you know, to, to meetings and to science. So we've, we've discussed trying to put on a sort of tram system, a bus, because this really is a sort of psychological block. And I see that, you know, yeah. regularly, uh, the barrier that produces oh, and, and the missed opportunities, you know, that we, we don't get together yeah, exactly. as much as we should do. Uh, I mean, it's said that relativity could have been discovered uh, like 40 years earlier. The physicists yeah, and the yeah, mathematicians had talked to each other in Göttingen. You know? yeah. um, but I know there's a good example, I think, at MIT, where mm-hmm. they created a fluidity in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. And um, the RSA code, which is used on the internet to protect credit cards, yep. was basically created because three people from very different departments, because yep. of the fluidity of the building yep. and the, the breakdown yep. of department barriers, yep started talking to each yep. other mm-hmm. and right. suddenly they found they had different yep. tools that they That's could right. Well, we, I, th- I think we've got an example here of, of an <clears throat> incredibly successful uh, workspace. We, a few years ago, a guy called Adrian Beecroft very kindly gave us money to develop a centre and we brought in an architect and he did these plans and basically the plans were you'd had a bunch of offices and the walls were glass. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was all glass and initial reaction is this is terrible, this is mm-hmm. corporate we do not want to have this environment. This is not academic. Mm-hmm. This is just inhuman. Turns out that it's been pretty successful in that a lot of people talk to each other. We have observers, particle physicists, um, theorists talking to each other, and uh, it it actually works. People do mm. collaborate. Having said that, we have Chris Lintot who sits down there, and maybe he can give a more personal <laughs> view. I, I, I was going to say this is the architect's view of things because I was there. I've, I've been happily ensconced in my rather lovely office in the Beecroft downstairs um, for a couple of years now, and we had the architects come round to see their design in use, and they were horrified by us because these beautiful glass walls incorporate blinds, yes. with the idea being that you do sometimes want to shut 
the blinds. And every single office on every single day has the blind shut. So my suggestion is that it's not necessarily the building that matters. I agree it's a great place to work. We talk to each other. I talk to cosmologists. I talk to theorists. I talk to other observers. I talk to people who do radio and infrared and ultraviolet and all the rest of the stuff. It's not the building. It's the coffee. Mm. There's a coffee yeah. machine with seats next to it. Yeah. Snack in the middle. You mentioned right. coffee right. as well. And, and a good coffee you know, the, machine the, is the, really the, the, There's this old joke that a mathematician is a device for turning coffee into theorems. Mm. That's right. And, yeah. you know, that's where people talk to each that's other. Right. It's not because they walk past an office and notice that I'm looking on Facebook. It's yeah. because I have to wait for my espresso with everyone I else. I think that's true. I mean, every we, you know, that's one bit of this building. The rest of this building is pretty dire. It's so and ugly it wasn't allowed in Morse. <laughs> At least that's, <laughs> the, that's how the legend we discuss, goes. You know, we discuss what can we do. What you know, this building is destroying our research. It's making it difficult for us. But actually, you know, if you spend a couple of years going giving seminars mm-hmm. in other buildings mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah typically buildings are pretty dire yeah. and it's not the buildings that create the culture it's the co- it's again it's what you're but saying. i think the buildings can certainly they help can, i mean no, I, agree. No, I think yeah. uh, I, I spent some time in cambridge uh, and and there you know they have uh, whiteboards in the toilets and you you, you know but you see people t- yes people are scribbling they suddenly have an idea talking to mm-hmm. people right. and uh, and i think it is creating an environment where you can have these yeah. chance things like having yeah. a good tea place i mean I, i'm very envious of the biochemistry department because mm. the mathematics at the moment we are scattered all over the place and yeah. i cannot bump into people yeah. do, that, you know, we are hoping for a new building do, do, do different scientists need different buildings do biochemists need something different obviously lab space but mm. yeah you know, we have mathematicians physicists mm. and biochemists do we need different things well i think or? i mean again if you look at the evolution of science if you if you look at your average day what do any type of scientist uh, what do they spend most of their time doing it's in front of a computer actually yes you can be an experimental scientist we can go and collect data but even us who collect you know imaging data we put people into scanners and whatever 80% of the time is spent on a computer. And this is important because, again, architects like the idea of, okay, everybody's sitting in a computer, let's have an open plan because they'll interact. Well, it's a disaster because naturally scientists are quite shy. They're often not socially very interactive anyway. I'm making sweeping generalizations. Mm-hmm. They naturally will try to hermit themselves away. One, because that's their disposition as a personality type, often, not always, uh, but also because of the nature of what they're doing. They need quiet time to think and, and, and analyse things without distraction. And yet then suddenly we have these sort of popular views that, oh, let's put them all into well, an open there's, plan. There's and, and it backfires. Well, there it, is it, a balance. I mean, yeah. you, can you need a private it. space and you. public space. Yeah. Agree, but your public space isn't where you should work, is my view. No, so I, I think, the, you know, I've, I've worked in several open plan areas and it's always failed I, because I people can't work, so they stay at home. They, they, they don't come in, so then they don't interact. So they're not even able to go to coffee because they're not physically in the building because they know yeah, they can't actually yeah. do the, the work. So what you need is, I think, I think the idea of the glass screens is great, and, and we've incorporated that into our lab. So people can visually see people. So there's a sense of energy yeah. and buzz, and people are here. Oh yes, so and so is there. So maybe I could go and ask them later. But you don't disturb them because they're busy. But you've got the coffee. You've got the mm. capability to actually, at an appropriate time, bump in and have a chat about something. And I think that's critical in the design. I saw an interesting use of uh, one of my favourite mathematical shapes, uh, the torus or the mm. donut or bagel, mm. uh, which is used uh, for the GCHQ Q building yeah. in Cheltenham where all the spies mm. are. Mm. And they said this is a perfect shape because they, they wanted somewhere outside which was still secure yeah. where they could chat, you know, in the summertime. Yeah. Going. Yep. And with this donut shape, oh, um, they can idea. go out into the little garden mm. in the middle of the yeah. donut and they're not observed by mm. anybody and they can mm. still chat. Mm. Um, and they've got this interesting relationship between a very public sort mm-hmm. of... Um, uh, 
corridor which runs all the way around the building and, and private spaces mm -hmm. where obviously yep. you're cracking your codes or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they have a real problem because you cannot quite work out how far you are around this torus shape. Right. It gives you, right. you, you lose total sense, sense of, of where geography. you are. Yeah. So it, it, they actually had to colour it in three different colours. So you realise I'm a third of the way around because it's now changed from green to purple and things. So it's interesting how different mm. shapes can mm. cause different problems. I was visiting, I mean, we haven't got onto it, maybe we don't we don't have time, but purpose-built buildings, well, I spend a lot of my time visiting telescopes, mm. and mm. You know, these are circular environments that move in the dark, so <laughs> there's all sorts of solutions as to how yeah. you stop your astronomers getting yeah. lost, but you know, glow-in-the-dark strip that starts low and then runs round but moves up to the top of the wall so right. that you can just follow it round to the door at any time. Um, the most bizarre one was I was visiting a, t a radio telescope in Spain for New Year, and we had time there, um, and it was in the middle of a ski resort. So you had these scientists at this very functional mm -hmm. brick building with a giant 30 meter radio dish on top of it with people in designer ski wear coming past. <laughs> and there was, what, what amazed me was despite, you, this place looked like it was out of James Bond. I mean, I'm sure it will be at some yes. point. And yet no one, no one paid any attention as they skied past. Even if they stopped to have a chat, yeah. they didn't react to Looking. the fact there was a giant radio dish yeah. behind them. <laughs> So whether that's a function of a building as well, to, to advertise to whoever's there, skiers or mm. spies or whoever else, I mean, that, that's interesting too. What, what about the art? I mean, Pedro, you've had interactions with artists. I mean, the, do you think art in a department actually is stimulating? I mean, there's obviously a lot of thought gone into the biochemistry building. Most of my experience is with artists, and I still don't have an answer for you. We had one very successful residency. We had someone who was here for, for two years who was an artist in residence, and um, a guy called Jem Finer. And he would come in and talk to people once a week, and he would spend the day in the office. And I think we all got a lot out of it in the sense that we would have to explain stuff to him. Um, we go down for coffee and we were taken out to something quite cerebral mm. that wasn't necessarily what we did. So I think it was... Um, I think it was intellectually stimulating, mm. but I still don't. I still don't know. I mean, it's great to have great art on the walls. I don't know if it affects our research. Probably it does. You know, the nicer the environment it is. I'm still trying to figure out what it's like having an art. You know, having an artist in residence is a great thing. Yeah, mm. Irene, what do you think? I mean, they obviously they've tried to create some pieces yeah. of art which challenge the <clears throat> research that's been done, that's stimulating right. people into yeah. thinking differently. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's very, very popular in my field in, in medicine to have art in the lab uh, and certainly in the imaging community, most imaging labs will have. Uh, so if you come up to our lab, you know, we every wall is plastered in some sort of visual representation of the mind. You know, we've got Alice in Wonderland, you know, it's a local sort of theme of, again, imagery and chicory and that sort of thing. So people tend to like it again it you know it, it improves the environment in which they're working it's better than the institutional white walls <laughs> like in this room yeah <laughs> although you do have a nice poster I see Pedro on your door um, and it gets people to think um, a little bit just differently you know why was the artist wanting to portray you know a piece of neuroscience in that particular way you know how it might even make you angry you know how how, how wrong are they they've got the total you know but either way it's provoking and it gets you thinking and it gets people talking um, and uh, again it can lead to you know an unusual journey that somebody might go on. Chris, I think you're very lucky to have just such beautiful images uh, of your science that you can just throw up very easily. I mean, I, I just love looking at pictures of the, the Hubble producers and things. It, it, it's true. It's one of the joys of being an astronomer. Though, you know, my research till recently, I'm a submillimeter radio astronomer, so I thought 16 pixels was exciting on a camera. So <laughs> don't tire us all with the same <laughs> brush. The interesting thing about those images is whether they're real or not. I mean, clearly that's data that's come straight off the... Let's take Hubble as an example. That's data that comes off the telescope, and they look amazing. But that's not real colour. 
might be optical if you're lucky, but quite often there's infrared mixed into that, or or ultraviolet, or some, even when you combine it with other observatories, purple is suddenly X-ray data. Um, the question is, does that matter? If you have a beautiful image of a galaxy, mm. do you care that it's not what your eyes would see if you looked through a telescope? Um, I don't know. The information's encoded, but I'm not always sure we tell people what they're getting. Yeah, I think that was one of the challenges mm. of the art in the biochemistry mm. building, is to make people realise that often their things mm. are simulations mm. of, of, of mm. uh, experiments and not actually what you're seeing. Make mm. people, and I think that's what art can do, make, mm. hopefully make science. But that's what we do in science. Life. You know, if you yeah. take, you know, working out, you know, protein 3D, you know, through extra crystallography, a structure, you know, you will represent it uh, in a certain way. I mean, you, you can just look at the history of that. You know, is that the true... Mm actual reality as you say of what it looks like no it's 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 a your interpretation so scientists are artists so we often have to present our brain images you know we will overlay the activity in particular colors and we'll we'll change that and we'll do 3d cutaways we are visually artists trying to sort of tell the story scientifically using vision and, and imagery as a medium which is a very powerful way to communicate science historically that's been true if you go back to leonardo da vinci i mean you you know imagery is very powerful uh, it's interesting so john barrow has just written a book in which is Images in Science, and it's this beautiful collection of books, but um, I saw him give a talk in which someone says, can you do science with pictures? Mm. And he says, you've got to be careful. It wouldn't be a very good idea to study um, the large-scale structure of the universe from analysing Van Gogh's Starry Night. Mm. And it is this thing mm. that, you know, there is an element where images actually, you've got to be careful, especially these images where you're talking about, that they're coloured in a certain way, mm. where there's some hand has gone in and done stuff. Mm -hmm. It's image as metaphor, it's really, metaphor. but yeah. you don't want to yeah. get stuck That's in the right. same metaphor yeah. if right. you don't have to. Well, it's almost time for us to go back to our, our labs and uh, work in our solitary environments, <laughs> beautiful environments. Uh, um, but before we go, a, a couple of the news stories um, to pick up on. Well, there's this is uh, an interesting story. There's been an experiment, an experiment which was put forward about almost 50 years ago to test Einstein's theory of general relativity. And basically what it wanted to do is to test, there's this thing called frame dragging, where if you've got a big object in space and time and it's rotating, um, it's going to slightly deform things around it. It's called the lens steering effect or frame dragging. And a satellite mission was proposed almost 50 years ago, and it's had this checkered history. It was proposed, it was given a grant from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, it was cancelled. Then it was given a grant from the 80s to the 90s, then it was cancelled. And finally it was launched in 2004. Unfortunately, it's had problems. And oh. it's trying to measure this effect, and they're trying to get down to 1%. And until very recently, they only got it down to about 100%. So they really had no constraints whatsoever. So NASA cancelled them. Uh, interestingly enough, a benefactor, a very rich person, someone called Fairbank, gave them half a million dollars. And now um, someone from Saudi Arabia have given them another, another 2.7 million. And they've brought down the accuracy to 15%. Wow. Remember, the goal is down mm. to 1%. So, you know, mm. maybe they'll get it down to 3%. But it's just this long story of mm. right, so it's it's perseverance. Right, now at the end yeah. of that story. Yeah. Yeah. A few more million uh, needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any listeners Two million out there? per percent. Yeah. And Chris, you've got a story. Well, a few stories together about whether there are other Earths, other Earth-like planets oh, yes, in our galaxy. Yeah. So Dr. Alan Boss from Carnegie, the Carnegie Institution got a lot of press recently because he said there should be a hundred billion Earth-like planets uh, in our galaxy. Billion? Yeah, one per star is his guess. But the truth is it's a guess. Um, what are we doing to try and work out whether there are Earths out there? Well, a new satellite's just been launched, Kepler, NASA's planet hunter, which is going to stare at one patch of sky in Cygnus 
uh, the constellation of Cygnus for a few years and watch for blinks as planets go in front of their stars. So, so that's the American effort. The French effort, Corot and a few other scientists, they've, that's another satellite in orbit. They've just seen the smallest planet yet. It's romantically called Corot XO7b. This is where we need an artist. Um, which is twice or the size of the Earth, but very close to its star. It goes around once every 20 hours. So the surface is about 1,000 degrees. So not Earth, but Earth-sized. Um, and another place to look for life, never mind Earth's, but look at the moons around the giant planets that we have seen. It's important to understand this. And just a, a week or so ago, or a few weeks ago, NASA and ESA, the, the two big space agencies, announced that we're going to go and explore Jupiter in our system and its moon Europa that might have a, a liquid ocean. So possibly life in our solar system as well. Great. Well, thank you, Pedro, Irene and Chris. And thank you all for listening to the Oxford University Science Podcast.